is February 15th, 2021, and you are listening to Sam Walking in the World. This is episode 48, the fastest growing podcast in all of Null Top Terrace. And as always, the thoughts of a guy who used to be unhappy. Now just trying to live like he wants to be when he dies, and I really am trying. Grateful to all of you, and I'm thrilled as ever to hear you listening to the sound of my voice. Where have you been, Sam? Well, I've been here, um, and I'm going to explain. This is probably the longest I've gone in between podcasts, and I will gladly explain it to you. Um, not that I'm presuming that you were, you know, falling to pieces without me, but I can cross my fingers. Anyway, so much has happened since my last podcast. I'll get into all that, but first I want to explain a little bit further about why I waited this long in between podcasts. And this is it. I am very visual. I think most men are. Uh, And I have this way of picturing um, this thing. I I guess I never called it anything because it's just something I kind of picture. But for the sake of explaining it, I will call it my arrows theory. Arrows, like bow and arrow. Arrows theory. And and it is this. People have arrows going either out or arrows going in. Pointing out or pointing in. You can think of them as shooting out or coming in, being hit in some way, I guess, by them. And when arrows are going out... I think of me expressing my own opinion about things, sharing my worldview, giving you all my meanness. Um, And when arrows are going in, I think of myself as listening to other people, um, absorbing what's going on around me. I guess you could throw reading in there. Um, I've I've been reading A Brave New World. Actually, Brave New World is what it's called by Aldous Huxley. I'm thinking about teaching it. It's pretty interesting. Um, I think of uh, watching the news as as difficult as it is. Um, I'm going to get to more of that. The, the difference. I spent about an hour this morning listening to um, MSNBC. Um, it was morning Joe, but because today's President's Day, happy President's Day, by the way, uh, Willie Geist was filling in for him. And I listened to about an hour or so of uh, MSNBC. Um, and then I also watched about an hour of Fox News. And uh, it, 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 it's if you were a Martian, you would have completely... Let's see, what's the good word for this? Uh, dichotomous views of the world, depending on which news channel you turned on. And not just which take, what take they have on the news, but what they think actually is. Like, what happened isn't what happened anymore. It used to be something happened, and then both people would have their own opinions, and both sides, I mean, would have their opinions about what happened. Now, now one side has, has a thing that happened, and the other side either doesn't have that as a thing that happened, or has it as a different thing that happened. So I might have to change this, here's what happened part of my introduction, because I guess it depends. Facts on the ground, you know. 
I thought there were such things as facts. I guess, I guess maybe not. Maybe everything is up for subjective interpretation. What a world that would be. I mean, we're struggling to decide what truth is. And uh, that brings me to the whole censorship debate. Which I guess isn't even a debate, because you can't have a debate if one side isn't there. But I'll get into all, all that and more. But first, let me get back to my arrows theory. Um, I feel like I have to always have, and I, I would say that you know people should have, more arrows coming in than they do pointing out. Like if you see somebody that is constantly egoic, um, all they can talk about or think about or care about or share about is themselves. You know, it usually comes with a degree of arrogance. I would say uh, sometimes I'll, I'll think to myself when I meet people like that, I'll, I'll think, well, all arrows out. And then there are super quiet people that, that you never hear talking and don't really know what they think. And, and, and I think, well, that person's pretty, pretty arrows in. I myself think a healthy balance is best. I think... I think that one must always have at least one more arrow coming in than they do going out. Because as soon as you have fewer arrows coming in, the next arrow out doesn't really have much value. I think of it as arrow comes in, arrow bounces around inside, mixes with what I have inside becomes something else and that forms an arrow that shoots out. If that makes any sense. Um, but to me it does. And uh, for the last one or two weeks I felt I needed some arrows in. And it was hard. It was hard. I gotta tell you, it's hard to, it's hard to do this podcast. It's hard to sit here thinking and 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 feeling things and sharing things um, when I'm not really sure what, what exactly I'm going to say. It's it's always in the starting. Once I start, that makes it a little easier. But I needed some arrows in, and I took a lot of arrows in. Took a couple extra loops around the trail with the dog. For some reason, the dog seems to know what to do in a way that's better than my idea of what to do. She, she thinks it's time for us to go for a walk. It's always better for me to just go. I always feel better after. She wants to grab my hat off my head and run around the coffee table 15 times. I could decide not to do that. But she really thinks it's a good idea. And, and then I do it. And then I feel good that I did it. Almost never um, do I feel like an expenditure of time insisted upon by my dog is a bad idea. Now, when I insist on things and do them, uh, you know, I'm like 50-50. Anyway, I needed some arrows in, and now I guess it's time for some arrows out. Um, and speaking of needing to start to get a push to do something, um, I, I want to share something that I did. Um... <laughs> It's, it's kind of has to do with fear. 
Um, fear of kind of stepping into the abyss. Um, fear of, uh, I guess, of, of uncertainty. And I, I've come to believe in my own life because I was unhappy. And uh, then I became happy. And I think that the choice was made for me. I didn't just decide I was going to be happy. Um, I, I needed a push. I don't think it would have happened without a push. I happen to have the gift of desperation. Um, I don't want to go too deep into it, but I reached a point where I was just uncertain about whether anything meant anything. And um, and I, I, I was really left with that that choice. It was almost like the, the, the plank was being pulled back from my feet on the pirate ship for say, can you picture it? And, uh, I was left without any more plank under me and I either had to get, jump back on the ship or I had to jump into the water. And I, I didn't really have a choice. They weren't going to let me back on the ship. And I fell into the water and I started swimming. And when I started swimming, I started getting happier. But I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it unless I didn't really have a choice. Um, I'll, I'll eventually tell you the details about all that, but it's not important right now. <clears throat> what is, is um, what I did. And uh, I, I'll, let me give you some quick background. Um, I work with, a, as you know, my other job besides teaching is that I work with two special needs girls who, um, you know, need a ride in order to go places and need some companionship and some guidance doing daily things. Basically, my job is to help them immerse themselves into the community and uh, the learning that happens beyond high school in the real world. And it's very enjoyable and rewarding because it allows me to see through their eyes I've already have I've already developed my own definitions of everything in the world. And they're changing still. I'd like to believe that I'm open enough for them to be changing. But with these girls, they're they're 19 years old and 23 years old. The 19-year-old is one that I'm thinking of right now. Let's call her, I don't know, Nicole. Um Nicole is 19. She's a former student of mine at, at a high school in an unnamed city school district. So she had to go through the ardor of ignorance. But she survived it. She's actually um, going to enter a program at uh, Syracuse University for, for uh, students with special needs. And she's going to continue learning. And I'm kind of helping her get out into the world. She's already pretty good at it. Um, but one thing that she's never done in her whole life is go up an escalator or down. And we frequently go to the mall. And this particular mall has a set of elevators that are in the middle. The mall is like a giant kind of cross. And the center of the cross is where the elevators are. There's, I think, four of them. And they're glass. So you can see all the way down into the middle of like the bottom lobby. And um, you can see all around when you're in them. And she doesn't have any problem. and hasn't had any problem taking elevators. But the escalator, for some reason, was a particular fear. 
And I can understand it. Like I said, when you see something through someone else's eyes, you kind of have to imagine it again for the first time. And Nicole is deathly afraid of elevators. I'm sorry, escalators. Keep doing that. And so it's been about a year that I've been working with her outside of school. And um, we've always just had the habit of made, made the habit of walking back to where the elevators are and go up and down the elevators. It is kind of an inconvenience because you have to travel all that way. You might have to travel all the way back to the elevators just to go up and then come all the way back to the spot you are just one floor above. I personally don't care. I mean, um, I'm getting paid <laughs> and I enjoy the time anyway. So, you know what she wants. Um, but I, th I thought of trying to, I don't know want to say pressure, but suggest firmly that she try taking the escalator. We were in the basement part. We were in the Burlington Coat Factory. I saw a nice pair of boots, actually. I ended up not buying because I didn't want to wait in the giant line. Have to look at the candy for five minutes. Uh, but anyway... Uh, we were in the basement part of the mall, and we were about to go up to the first floor. We parked in the uh, underground parking, which is awesome. It's still freezing cold in the winter, but you're not really outside. But I digress. And so, as we were about to go up to the mall proper, um, we, we could walk all the way down to where the elevators were, or we could go up the escalator that was immediately in front of us. And I said, why don't we try it? I've suggested that we try it before. And then her her instinctive, you know, reflex reaction is, no, I'm good. She says, I'm good. I'm good. She is good. But that's her way of saying she doesn't want to go up the escalator. And so <laughs> we, we she, she, but she's, she's open, you know. She knows that it's irrational, that she can't use it. She knows that it's inconvenient. And so I thought, you know, maybe maybe today's the day. And so we walked over to where the escalator, you know, on ramp is. And it was about, I don't know, I want to say, I don't know, 1130 in the morning on a Sunday. So it wasn't terribly crowded. But there were people that were entering the basement through the, in, the you know underground parking. And so as we stood in front of it, contemplating it, several times we had to, step out of the way to allow other people to go up the escalator. And I would talk to her about it. And I would ask her what she's afraid of. And, and she's pretty good about knowing. She said she's afraid of falling. She's afraid of, of heights. And she's afraid of falling. And I thought, well, the elevator doesn't seem to bother her. But you know what? You never know why things are the way they are. And so as we stood there letting people pass us and then going back up to have our tippy toes right up against where the elevator steps come out of the ground. Um, I would talk to her about it and tell her that there really is no fear. There's no um, danger of falling. I mean, she might fall on the escalator. She might, she might get a bruise or cut, but in the, in the large scope of things, I thought, so what? You know, a lot of times when you're about to burst into something new, there's a little bit of pain that goes with it. 
pain that you, uh, upon reflection, would accept, would, would would gladly accept in order to have your life change in whatever way it changes. This is just such a perfect microgasm. And so it took a lot of coaxing just to get her to, to reach one foot out and put it down on the emerging stair. And uh, what she was doing was she would she would put her foot down on the stare as it was coming and moving and but but she wouldn't put any weight on it and so so the stairs would continue to pass under her feet and as it did the motion scared her and she pulled her foot back and then uh, we'd have to get out of the way other people would go people were very nice i think they could tell what we were doing i was wondering about the security cameras like were they watching us wondering what the hell we're doing but I bet it was pretty obvious to anybody who saw it. So I, I didn't, honestly, I blocked all that out. I didn't care. Um, and so we repeated this process probably 10 times. Standing in front. I made her put both. I didn't make her. I asked her to put both of her toes. Like up, be up to the balls of her feet. Over the edge. As the stairs were coming up and passing under. In order for her to feel both feet on it. But again, her weight was still firmly planted on the ground, unmoving ground. And and she literally just, she would try three or four times to put her foot down, but she wouldn't put any weight on it. And then she would say, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Let's just go to the elevator. And she would walk five or six paces away from the entrance to the escalator, and I would walk with her. I was trying to comfort her. I just kept on repeating that there really wasn't any danger and that, I, t I tried to tell her to imagine what her life would be like once she became an escalator person. Literally, 19 years of life, literally, never ever rode a flight of uh, on an escalator. And it, it, this is the kind, of course, that has the moving handrails. So it's a pretty good escalator, actually. And so finally, I, I don't even know if I planned it. Um, but I, I kind of knew it was the only way it was going to happen. And so I said, I'll be right behind you uh, in case you in case you do lose your balance. I'll be right here, and I'll be on the escalator too. Um, and I'll just stand right behind you in case you fall. And so she got up to the escalator. She put her hand on the handrail, kind of letting it slide under her hand. And then she sort of grabbed it, and her body started to move. And she was going to put her foot down, and she she recoiled and and tried to put her foot back down, but I was already pushing her. <laughs> At the moment, I wasn't thinking about her, or else I probably would have felt terrible. But I, I kind of, I was holding her, so I didn't like two-hand shove her. I like pushed her with my chest as I had my hands around her, and I just kind of stepped behind her kind of forcing her to take the place in front of me, which was on the escalator. And as soon as she did it, she grabbed both, both, she put both hands on the same handrail and, and had one foot on one step and one foot on the other, but we were going up the escalator. And she was, she was sort of crying. She was saying she was scared. She said she wanted to go home. And I said, I said, look up, look up. And she looked up, and it kind of calmed her down. She was still kind of whimpering, but she realized that it wasn't, it wasn't going to last forever and that she was already on it. And and she kind of 
had a little bit of an anxiety attack, I have to admit. I feel terrible. I feel terrible. That it's like abuse. But we got to the top, and she easily got off by herself, probably instinctively, like, like her survival instinct came. Because a lot of people have trouble getting off, too. They don't want to step off. But she just hopped right off. And I hopped right off behind her, and I threw my hands up in the air like I had just scored a goal in hockey. And I said, yes. And I just, I couldn't help it. I had this outpouring of, of emotion. I, I was celebrating like she like we had just done something great. And she was whimpering, and her whimpering quickly died down. And she, we were just standing there, and I was just looking at her. And she was breathing really heavy. And then her breathing slowed down. Breathing slowed down. And I was like, how do you feel? It's like, I'm, I was scared. Like, are you scared now? She's like, no. I was like, are you okay? She was like, I guess. It's like, do you want to go home? She's like, no, I'm good. And I said, uh, you're an escalator person now. She's got this big smile on her face. I was like, no, you didn't really have a choice. Um, our goal is going to be for you to step on the escalator by yourself. And she actually said, well, maybe you could push me a few more times until I get used to it. <laughs> I said, yes, absolutely, I will. And I just thought what, what, how much it reminds me of my own fears and how I would not have, I would not have taken my first step um, unless I didn't have a choice. I think that's an important thing that people do for each other because that fear is real. It may be irrational, but it's real. And, and it's just impossible sometimes to be your own initiating force. People need people for that. Or desperation. I kind of manufactured my own desperation, her own desperation for her. And boy, she was smiling the whole rest of the time. And in the car, she was planning how she was going to tell her mom. Her sister also doesn't ride the escalator. Hasn't in her 23 years of life. And so I just got to imagine her going home and telling her mom and her sister that she rode the escalator. I, I, I think it's fair for her to characterize it any way she wants to. She doesn't have to include the part about me making her do it because she did it, nevertheless. And she survived. I thought, what an awesome thing. And maybe criminal. I don't know. I might be going to jail for it. I haven't been charged yet. But in retrospect, I would do it again. And... To be honest, I probably will do it again. But that was one of the big things that happened since my last podcast. Probably the biggest. I, I tried to think of things that I haven't done in my whole life. Like, uh, ask yourself, how many things recently have you done that, have you, that you had previously never done in your whole life? Some people, for a lot of people, I think, one of the main ones would be flying in an airplane. Some people still have never flown on an airplane, gone on a roller coaster. Um, maybe some people that are afraid of boats haven't ever been on a boat. Um, but it was a doozy. It really was a doozy. All right. Um, I, when I get back, I will talk about so much stuff that's happened. Um, here's here's some stuff that's happened. Um, the Daytona 500 happened. Um there was an enormous fiery crash at the end of it on the last lap, and it was awesome. 
Um, and I honestly don't even know who won, but I guess it doesn't matter. Um, the Democrats failed to impeach a man who isn't the president. And was, it got me thinking, like, is it murder if you shoot a dead guy? Anyway, Trump was acquitted on incitement charges. And I'll talk more about that, what it means to actually incite. Whether or not speech should be limited because it's considered incitement. And then the question ends up being, well, who gets to decide what is considered incitement? Everyone always says you can't yell fire in a theater, which actually isn't true. You can't. But, um, well, I'll talk more about that. Gavin Newsom is being recalled in California. The governor of California is being recalled. Apparently, people are displeased with him for numerous reasons. Andrew Cuomo is in hot water after uh, hiding the number of nursing home deaths. Um, he tried to claim that, that they died in the hospital. And many of them did, uh, but they got COVID in the nursing home <laughs> and then died in the hospital. Many came from the hospital and then got COVID and died in the nursing home. But it was almost like nine, I don't know, nine or 10,000 people maybe 14,000 people that died, that he hid the numbers. And then one of his aides admitted it, apologizing to Democrats for putting them in that awkward political position. Never mind the 14,000 people that died. And the, the, it was more about uh, putting them in that uncomfortable position of having to explain it because uh, Republicans were being so hard on Cuomo for his bad handling of COVID. But apparently it was good enough to get an Emmy and, um, and write a best-selling book about how great he is. Uh, let's see what else happened. Um, Missouri representative Cory Bush said that the riots are the language of the unheard. Riots are the language of the unheard. She, of course, was not talking about the riots at the Capitol. Uh, that was something that she said over the summer when uh, the BLM protests were destroying businesses and creating $2 billion of damage and cost many people their lives. Many people were killed during that. Those were the ones where the riots were the language of the unheard, not the ones at the Capitol. Uh, let's see. MSNBC declared this morning that Trump may be gone, but he has left America with a, quote, culture of violence to deal with. Again, crickets during the summer of riots, people being killed defending their businesses. You know, the mostly peaceful protesters that killed them because they really wanted new sneakers and TVs uh, and and um, and social justice. So and then I'm going to talk a little bit about teachers unions right now. Teachers unions are re refusing to go back to school unless this long laundry list of things is done, including completely changing ventilation systems and all teachers being vaccinated. Uh, science doesn't really show that they need to be. In fact, the CDC director herself, Joe Biden, CDC director, said that they don't need to be vaccinated in order for it to be safe to go back because of the rate at which COVID is spread by children and and the safety inside schools. The numbers just don't show people transmitting COVID in great numbers in school. Plus, kids are young and are able to handle it. And they're, not, they're not typically passing it on to teachers. I can speak from experience. That hasn't happened very much in this whole year, a couple times maybe, and everyone was fine. So I'll talk all about that and a couple more stupid things um, when I get back from this break. So hang around. It is good to hear you hearing me again. Milkman. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 48. I didn't even mention Milky. 
Um, during our hiatus, Milky did a body cleanse. No hay, no grass, none of the usuals, just, what was it? Oh, okay, I thought it was, I thought it was an artichoke or something. Pomegranate juice. Just pomegranate juice for how many days? Eight days. How do you feel? Oh, I can't say that on the air. <laughs> Why did you do it then? Oh, yeah, I have a wife too. Oh, well, hopefully things will get back to normal down there and everything will work itself out. But anyway, I'm glad you're back, Milky. So, um, all right, here's something else that's stupid. Um, I, and I don't want to say this the wrong way. I don't think it's, it's possible, though, for me not to say it the wrong way, or at least be taken the wrong way. Um, when I, I got my second COVID shot. I, I think I might have mentioned that already. So now it's been 15 days, I think, since my second shot. So my antibodies are all built up. And now it's up for debate how long uh, I can still carry and shed the virus to other people. So I don't know. I'm wearing my mask anyway, but... I don't like it. Anyway, as I was going through the maze of, of uh, you know, the at, at the place where I got my shot, it's in this giant, like, almost looks like an airplane hangar. It's an exposition center at our state fairgrounds. And it was very well organized, I have to say. But you had to go through this, uh, you know, those, like, felt ropes they have at the bank? They had, like, a maze of those in you had to stand six feet away from people in front of you. And it was a long line. And you had to make a couple of turns. And, you know, that, that degree of awareness that you need to know that, like, the line is moving in front of you. And which direction to go after. And, and whether to have your ID out earlier or wait till you're asked to do it when you get to the table. All those little cues that you can kind of use to read where somebody's at. And there were... There were many um, elderly people because I'm sure they're in the category now where, they, where they're able to get the shots, which is great. And I felt like, you know, I felt, almost felt bad being younger. Um, but I am a healthcare worker and I'm a teacher. so. But anyway, as I was moving through the line, I kind of noticed some of the elderly people. I don't want to say old, but old, I guess. Um. And I see some of them, I swear, they looked completely clueless, you know, late to understand what's going on around them, just kind of staring into the distance, I think. And then all of a sudden, something around them causes them to have to walk or move. And, and they're just like completely surprised by it. My grandparents were never like this. My grandfather, in, even in his 90s, was not like this. I mean, he got speeding tickets in his 80s. And my grandmother was a, a pistol. She looked, I think, to be 93, 94. And um, she was just, I'm, I thank God every day that I have my grandma Teresa's genes. But they were never like that. So I never got to, like, understand how people are like that. And you know what I think? I've, this is my theory. I think clueless old people aren't clueless because they're old. I think they're clueless because they're clueless. I think if you trace back their cluelessness... It probably extends all the way back to their adolescence. I could be wrong. It could be completely wrong for me to even be saying this. I don't know. But I just notice differences. And I think 
I, I don't think it's fair to blame cluelessness on age. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure people that have it together that are old look at other people that are old that are clueless and go, you're just clueless. We often, as a younger generation, make the mistake of presuming that it's because they're old. I don't think it's fair to the old. I don't know if that makes any sense. But honestly, I don't think it's age. I think it's probably they were clueless their whole lives. And sometimes their spouse isn't clueless. Like, the man will be standing there just staring into space. Seems physically capable. And then his wife will have to, like, hit him on the side like an old jukebox. And he'll, he'll start playing the song again and start walking forward as though nothing happened. They got to be around the same age. But what do I know? I mean, I don't know anything. I just thought it was kind of funny. It's just not fair to blame the old for clueless. Okay, another thing I wanted to talk about was this strange dynamic that I have. And I don't know if you're like this or not, but this is my what you hear is my dog rooting through the recycling bin. She's mad because I was gone. I'm sorry, honey. You don't need what's in there. Um, and this is what I find I do. I, I have this, these urges to do stuff, right? Like, I want to eat a whole pizza. And not just one piece. I want to eat the whole pizza. And then I'm so full, I can't eat another whole pizza. The reason I can't eat the next one is because I'm full. Um, I was like that with drinking. I was always thinking about my next drink, not the one I was drinking. Even like in college and talking, talk, 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 worrying, or just worry. I, I would have to put one worry away because another one was taking its place. All of this was a, a very common dynamic during my unhappy days. Unhappy days. <laughs> that was a show. But anyway, I have now come to learn how to delay my gratification and it isn't easy i think the reason particular let's say with eating i think i think the reason i do it with eating is because i know the end of the day is coming and i'll be asleep so i can't keep eating so i'll just wait till the end of the day eat a whole bunch of stuff like this giant eclectic thing like an old taco bell taco um a ramen noodles cup um, half of an old steak that I had chopped up still and like two eggs and I'll be full. Maybe some old spaghetti sauce that my mother left us and I'll like dip, I don't know, a slice of pizza in it or something. And then I'll be full and I'll go to sleep. And because I abstain from eating all day, I'm, I'm still losing weight. I don't recommend this to anybody, but it does seem to work for me. And it's funny because in the process of abstaining in that space before I end up gratifying, you know, giving myself the gratification, I feel really good. It's so strange. Like almost like in the space that exists as a result of my abstinence from these things. And I think the vigilant prevention of them in my daily life, like smoking or, or, you know, drugs or alcohol. I don't, I don't do either of those. Um, in the abstain, not, not that I don't have the urge, but the abstain in that, in that place where I'm abstaining, I feel like my head is so clear. 
and I get some of my best thinking done. I think that's why I do some of my best thinking is in the morning. Um, I was up at two this morning because the dog wanted to, because I went to sleep very early. I took a nap at like four and like just didn't wake up until like midnight. And then the dog heard my activity and all of a sudden we had to go for a hike at two in the morning through the woods. And my wife worries when I do that, like, what if you get jumped? I'm thinking like, it's like 12 degrees out in the middle of the woods. I wonder who's, it'd be different if it was in the summer. Like a bunch of people that just hang out there all day. Like in 12 degrees, snow, someone's like sitting up in this five square mile area. And by happenstance, someone comes along and they rob them, but they don't have any idea the person's coming. It's very unlikely. But I don't know. She worries. And so I, I did a hike at two and then, uh, and I did some incredible thinking during it. And then sometimes, but it was arrows in. I was listening to the audio version of Brave New World. I was I'm listening to a few podcasts, the Jordan B. Peterson. And my brain is so mossy. And I feel like if I woke up and like, I don't know, smoked pot or, or I don't even know what. If I, if I, if I stuffed my belly with food, breakfast or something, I just, I feel like I, my brain wouldn't be the same way. And I, I, it works for me. I don't know. I, I, there was a guy I used to know. He was smoked pot all the time. And then he just quit. And he quit doing everything. He started eating healthy. And he always had, he always had this baseball hat on that said, live straight. And I, was, I never understood it. And, and I was like, God. And he was a, he was a pneumatic dude. Like, he, he ended up becoming a free climber in the North Pacific Northwest and like climbing trees with chainsaws, cutting branches, unhooked from the tree. And he just, I, I, whenever I think about people who are living life very full, he, he got into skydiving. Eventually that's how he died. But he, he really, he really lived straight. And I feel, I feel like it is the best way to live. And here's, here's why I think. I think that it might be the participation in, in such things, um, as I mentioned, are always invariably disappointing. You know, if you if you get drunk, you're disappointed in the morning. In most cases, I think. You got a headache. If you eat too much, as soon as you're done eating, like if you eat a whole tray of donuts, which I've done, afterwards you're like, oh, why did I do that? And, and I think in some way, the potential energy um, of holding off on things turns out to be greater than the kinetic energy they release, so to speak. It's kind of an analogy. I think my attraction to this philosophy is the eventual reward. And that, that kind of goes like this. When this potential energy grows to a critical mass from having not done things that might be immediately pleasurable. What eventually occurs is a necessary, almost involuntary release of something good, a good thought, uh, a good idea, um, what, however people under, to express themselves, a good song they play, um, art they might create. Um, they may channel it into an essay they have to do for school. Um, and I don't know, it might just be me. 
but I guess I guess since since the anticipation of self gratification is greater than the gratification itself, it's it seems like it's most satisfying to abstain from them in perpetuity, or at least as long as you can go. I know you you have to reward yourself. I have to reward myself. Like I said, I stuffed myself at the end of the day. But in that in that middle area before that, I think if there's anything that you do that you're usually, you know, at least a little bit disappointed that you did afterwards, see how long you can push it off. Just see what your brain does during that time. Uh, that works for me. It gives me, uh, I don't know what, I don't know if it's a biochemistry of not having eaten for a while or just the sobriety of being, you know, of, of living straight, I guess. I don't think I could say it better than that. But anyway, um, I cannot wait to get to these current events. There are so many of them, and um, I will be back uh, right after this. Welcome back to Sam Walking the World, episode 48. Now I want to talk a little bit about school slash COVID. I'm also going to talk about school choice for a little bit. Um, now, first, uh, all, we, all we hear is follow the science. Follow the science. What it really means is follow the science when it's politically expedient. That's what they mean. If a doctor was telling me to follow the science, like my own doctor, I trust he's already following the science when he prescribes a medication or, or analyzes some kind of ailment. But when it comes to politicians and, and political entities, if they really mean follow the science, then it should be follow the science all the time. But it isn't. If we follow the science, then there would only be two genders, biological males and biological females, according to biology. Any other manifestation of, of, of a thought or feeling that you are a different gender would not be following the science. Would it not? Now, I'm not I'm expressing an opinion on that. I'm just saying, clearly, that would not be following the science. Um, but in the case of COVID, uh, we're left in this gray area. Now, I teach at a private school, so I don't really have to worry about it. I'm kind of looking on as an observer. But I have spent years teaching in an inner city school district. And so, like, for example, Chicago. This, I'm sure the Chicago public school system is challenging to teach in. I'm sure there are probably some layers of it that are very rewarding. But as is the case in any inner city, most of the people that you're dealing with, are they have significant challenges, academic and behavioral. And so I feel for these teachers. The teachers' unions are being banged on pretty hard right now. And, and my, my take on that is, is it, it, having taught in inner city is, is unions are a necessary evil. Because in this climate, um, where there's this, I, I, I don't want to wade into these waters, but in this, in this racially charged environment, um, where people are pointing fingers and trying to attribute their idea of the reasons why, um, certain demographics aren't performing as well. Um, some people would say, let's just say people of color, for example, because they're always highlighted in this argument. Um, 
they're they the statistics show that they as a group of course not every individual as a group they're performing lower than their white counterparts some people blame the schools you need to get them out of those failing schools i've already talked about that in previous episodes um some people blame our general society and the white privilege that they claim exists in it now it's white supremacy even um some people blame families family structure um but whatever the reason is if there isn't unions if there aren't unions in inner cities then what i noticed the trend tended to be that teachers will be judged based on the performance of their students and most i would say probably all inner city school districts have what's called social promotion meaning they don't stay at the grade level that they're actually at they move to the next quote grade level by age because of the stigma that would be attached but really what i think it is 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 there just there's no place to put them and i joke about this sometimes but it's true if an inner city school developed its programming based on the actual grade levels in reading and math where students actually are there would probably be three times as many elementary schools half as many middle schools and maybe one high school in my particular in unnamed inner city school district and they can't do that they just can't do that now, in a perfect world, I think that would be best because people will be able to be taught to at their level instead of always having to try and circumvent the, the deficiency that they have. And then there's really no way to catch up except catching up. Maybe extend school longer for people who take longer to learn, whatever, a million ways of, of reinventing the programming other than the way it is where they just get moved along. And eventually, many of them receive a diploma that's not worth very much, I'll say, to keep it uh, polite. And so and yet you, we also see this because we, the reason we know this, and this is never highlighted, is the dropout rate of college freshmen at community colleges who come from inner city schools is incredibly high. There are programs that allow them to go without having to pay, which is good. But then they end up taking the placement test and get placed in remedial non-credit classes because they essentially have to finish high school before they can actually start college classes. They just attempt to finish high school at college. And usually they'll try for a semester or two and drop out. If you don't believe me, check the statistics. We have our own county of community college, and it is true. So there's all kinds of trouble there because if, if teachers are, are paid and uh, ranked by the, the performance of the students they teach, all that would really happen is it would be there this massive jockeying process and backstabbing and, and, and bribing for teachers to get the best students. And everyone that wasn't connected or, or did, couldn't find their way into one of those positions would end up being called a bad teacher because they would have the, quote, bad students. And the good teachers have the good students. It's amazing how a teacher can go from a terrible teacher and then leave that inner city school district and go to a county school district and suddenly become an incredible teacher. 
Like it, it can happen like a day, one day there, one day in the other place. And now all of a sudden you're brilliant because your students are performing better. Just the, the general arc of the education of a person doesn't change much. My contention is that it's mainly created by their home life, by the, the habits that are formed when they're young and that are continued as they go through, you know, prepubescence, adolescence. Are they being read to? Is it important that they know how to read and write? Do they do their homework? Are they passing their grades legitimately? Are they being socially promoted? Um, and that, that arc, I mean, don't get me wrong, teachers can make major changes in some, some kids. In some cases, they can be the complete difference between a kid going one direction and a kid going another. But in most cases, the arc is set. We can make, we can continue it on its arc. We can increase it a little bit, maybe a lot. But that arc is is based on much much more than the than the. It's let me put it this way. It's based more on the other eighteen hours than the six they spend at school. Those other eighteen hours have such an impact on that arc. Much more than you can do in six. I mean, just do the math. What proportion of the time does a teacher have a student compared to a parent? having a child. And I, I mean, as parents, I take pride in that. Um, I just got some good news from my wife about how Morgan is doing incredible in this new internship that she has. And I never had any doubt because her arc was set because we cultivated it and, and nurtured it over the course of her life and from the time she was four. So anyway, Anyway, back to back to uh, as it relates to COVID. The teachers in Chicago don't want to go back, apparently. But the science says that statistically, it is very, very unlikely for someone to catch or pass COVID at school. They're not cooped up in the same small area when they are at home. And um, children tend to not catch it. When they do, they tend to deal with it very well. There is just the data shows that very few, in very few cases, not enough for it to be considered dangerous compared to the alternatives. And this isn't me saying it. This is Rochelle Walensky. Rochelle Walensky is Joe Biden's uh, director for uh, the Center for Disease Control, her CDC, his CDC director. And, and she, standing in front of a, an insignia that says CDC, announces that it is safe to go back to school. And then Joe Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, says it's not. She, well, she says, we want to get them back, but safely. I don't understand that. And clearly it's because they're getting, they're getting pressure from the teachers' unions that, to not go back. And they, they have a lot of sway. They get a lot of Democrats elected. Um, they can have an impact on on uh, uh, a politician's ratings. And so I guess you have to know where your bread is buttered if you're a Democrat. And apparently Biden does. And so they're still in this holding pattern. And then when she when she did say when they were going to go back and how, because she wants to do it as soon as possible, um, it turns out that it's one day a week 
And it's going to be that way until, I think she said, for the foreseeable future. So one day a week. And that's just, I think, elementary schools. And I, I, I really do see both sides. I see those people that are, those, those teachers that are in the trenches, not getting much help, getting blamed, you know, n- not really being able to control behavior because of these neutered code of conducts, codes of conduct. Um, I experienced it here in, a, in, a, in my smaller city in a, in a kind of you know, smaller way, but the dynamic is the same. And it is a grist mill. I'm so glad I got out. <laughs> but I, I, I don't understand. Follow the science. Your CDC director says it's it's safe to go back. Why are you still going back for one day? Only. And so I, I, I don't understand that. And that leads me to this argument about school choice. Because many people that can afford it are taking their kids out of public schools and putting them in private schools because they've been back every day. And when, when COVID cases do pop up, they make adjustments. And they'll, they'll have remote learning for, I don't know, 10 days, and then people go back. They'll find out who exactly was exposed, and those people will, will teach remote or learn remote, and the rest of the people will go on as always. And so there's a lot of people pulling their kids out of public schools and putting them in private schools. And, and the, whenever this happens, the subject of uh, the, the topic of um, school choice comes up. I mean, the, the amount of money spent per, per child in an inner city school district is more than it is in a, a public in a suburban public school. Probably more than it is in a private school. I mean, when you hear the number, I don't have it right in front of me, but it's like, it's a lot. It's like $21,000 a year per kid. And so people are suggesting, why don't they take that government money? Because inner city schools are exclusively funded by, at least in, in, in middle to larger cities, by the government. Because most of the people don't pay taxes. Many of them don't earn any money. Many of them don't own property, so they don't pay property taxes. So it tends to be a third-party payer, usually state governments as funded by the federal government. And their budgets just keep growing. So people suggest, why don't you take that money on the false premise that it's failing schools and not failing students, um, take that money and and let that money follow the child to either a, a suburban public school or a private school. And I used to be against it because as a teacher in the inner city, all that you would be left with were the kids who wouldn't be able to make it in those settings either because of academics or behavior. In many cases, that's behavior. They're confronted by a true code of conduct. And the tipping point in those areas, in the suburbs, is is well-behaved students who can comply. And so those who don't comply are able to be, you know, disciplined, given consequences. You know, Lou Holtz said either they become more like you or you become more like them when he was talking about new recruits coming into his program, having their old ways of doing things. And, and it just depends on the tipping point. I've talked about the tipping point principle before. As soon as you get over 50% of students who will simply not comply, you cannot afford to enforce the rules anymore. You can't suspend 55% of your population. And if you don't have the support of families allowing that suspension, especially if it falls down racial lines, you just can't do it. 
That's just the that's just the sad fact. And so, I'm sure many students, especially because of sports, they would like to be able to go play sports in these you know nice suburban facilities. Um, they many people would try if it were possible, hypothetically, for people to take that twenty one thousand dollars anywhere they wanted and go to school. Number one, it would completely deplete the inner city of everyone that can't. And you'd see large numbers of people attempting it, running into disciplinary problems, and then having to go back to the inner city school where there's a lower standard of behavior. As it has to be the case. There's nothing they can do about it. I don't even blame administrators. It's just, it's the political state of affairs that... Sorry, that was my phone. That um, at my tax appointment today, I'm going to find out how much I'm going to get in my income tax. But anyway, um, I, I honestly think they should just do it just so they could see. Let the money follow the child. First, we'll find out who's who. Right? You have to, you have to separate the subgroups of those who can and those who can't comply with a real code of conduct. And then you have to find the, the best fit. Is it suburban, suburban school districts or, or maybe a county program? Like for those students who are able to manage to behave properly, generally that usually comes with some parent support, but are behind academically. There are plenty of county programs. It's the place where county schools, suburban school districts send their students who need alternative programs. And we have a county programs that's very that are very good at that. And so even students who are behind academically would be able to find a fit in a you know quote better place. Students that are able to behave and are academically on par would be able to attend suburban schools or private schools. And think of what that would leave in the in left in the inner city. You, who would want to teach there? And everyone starts out idealistic. You know, you start out with this idea that these people are, are in the position they're in through no fault of their own. And then gradually you get to know them. You know, you're, you're invested. I spent 25 years invested in the inner city teaching predominantly special education to students of color. You know, it's, I think it's fair to say I gave the best years of my life to trying to help people. And I helped many people. But many people are not able to be helped. And, it, and in many cases, those would be the students that are left. Here's an idea I had. Inner city dorms, inner city school district with dorms, on-site living. Go to sleep at the right time, get up at the right time. There are plenty of companies that would provide workers for this. And it's kind of what I do in my other job. I, I manage people with special needs, but they're, 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 even in the industry I'm in, there are plenty of places where they have, they call them day habs, where people live at the place. And, and uh, counselors and, and uh, you know, direct service providers, which I am, um, they, they spend a shift there. At the night shift, at the morning shift, the afternoon shift, whatever it is. And you can create a stable environment for people, eating properly, rewards. You know, I imagine like a big arcade room, movie room, places where you could earn 
but uh, uh, you know rewards and privileges be able to concentrate on your work without distractions and that, that, that's so radical that would never possibly be the case it'd be like taking kids away from their parents that's what they would call it but the money that those kids have spent on them both from social services perspective that go, money that goes to their parents and from the educational budget that's allotted to them I think it's an interesting idea on campus learning. Um, and But that'll never happen. That'll never happen. But anyway, that was just a thought. But um, I will get to the harder news after I get back from my tax appointment. So it'll seem like one second, though. So I will see you after that. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 48. Thank you for staying with me. This has been quite a weird one. But I have something that I want to finish with that I've been thinking a lot about that has been in the news. And it is uh, related to climate change and the environment and green jobs and all that. And um, I want to thank Milky for putting this all together for me because it took a lot of work. So I appreciate that. Um. So first, let me just say on the outset that I care about the environment. All right. I don't want to see the environment destroyed. I love nature. You've heard me rave about walking in the woods and I, I would hate to see pollution or, you know, I, I, in, in general, I don't want to see the ozone layer depleted. Um, I'm, I'm totally on board with any, any new form of energy production that has um, reduced carbon emissions. That being said, <clears throat> um, I, I want to first play you a, a clip of Peter Ducey, who I said is a rising star in the in the White House press pool. He only he, he seems to be the only one asking actual questions um, to the Biden administration regarding its approach to fossil fuel production. Now, as you may or may not know, he probably know. He, he canceled the <clears throat> the uh, XL pipeline, the Keystone pipeline that's coming in from Canada. And it's bringing um, oil and gas directly from the ground in Canada through these pipes that will probably, I think it was planned on, on bringing it all the way down through the center of the country, eventually down to the Gulf so that it can be shipped and it can be transported um, without the risk of of using trucks and trains that are more likely to to have accidents and spill it and as well as it, that require more carbon emissions to move it and and so in, in an effort to save the environment ostensibly the biden administration canceled that keystone pipeline deal putting many many people out of jobs but they were assured by the Biden administration of all the new green jobs that they would be able to get in the, in the production of of energy that you know industries that produce energy that don't have carbon emissions. So, and I'd be totally on board with that if they existed. But um, I'm 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 kind of I'm kind of left thinking that they don't, um, or at least they don't exist well enough and in large enough proportion to be able to supply energy in place of fossil fuels, particularly clean natural gas. So anyway, um, and by the way, those, 
the oil and gas in those pipelines are still going to be transported. They're still going to be burned in addition to the fossil fuels that are burned to deliver them by truck and by train. So I, I don't quite understand it. It sounds to me a lot like virtue signaling. And I know that word is getting old fast, but it sounds more to me like it's to please environmentalists than it is to actually solve the problem. And the damage it's doing in the meantime seems to be larger than the solution to the problem. Like Trump once said, the, the disease can't be, I mean, the cure can't be more painful than the disease. In this case, it does seem to be so. So <clears throat> let me play for you, um, Peter Ducey, uh, asking uh, Jen Psaki, Joe Biden's press secretary, about this at a press briefing. And then um, I'll comment as we go. We'll listen to it uh, together. This is how it begins. When is it that the Biden administration is going to let the thousands of uh, fossil fuel industry workers, whether it's pipeline workers or construction workers, who are either out of work or will soon be out of work because of the EO, when it is and where it is that they can go for their great job? Excellent question. And he said EO there, that's executive order. <clears throat> Joe Biden you know, made an executive order that ended the Keystone Pipeline. He promised all these people that they would be getting green new jobs. You know, maybe, you know, yay for the environment, right? Everybody wins. And that's something the administration has promised. Uh, there is now a gap. So I'm just curious when that happens, when those people can count on that. Now listen to how condescending her answer is. It, 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 in addition to being condescending, it also is completely uninformative. It, it, there appears to be no, not only no answer for right now, but there doesn't appear to be any clear answer for in the future. And I'm, I'm really trying to give them a chance. I'd like to know, because if there is a solution to this problem, I want to be on board. But but just follow me here. <laughs> Listen to her answer. Well, I, I'd certainly welcome you to present your data of all the thousands and thousands of people who uh, won't be getting a green job, maybe. Think of that. She asked him to present data of all the thousands and thousands of people who will not be getting green jobs. In other words, she's, she's asking him to prove a negative, to demonstrate a negative. Show me the data on the people who won't be getting jobs. How, how do you do that? That's like saying, I want you to show me your evidence that there's no such thing as unicorns. Until then, there are plenty of unicorns. Show me the evidence that you have that there are no green new jobs that these people won't be getting, and I and uh, and I will grant your point. Otherwise, there are lots of new jobs. Next time you're here, you can present that. Like you said that they would be getting green jobs. I'm just asking when that happens. Uh, Richard Trumka, who is a friend, longtime friend of Joe Biden, says about that day one Keystone EO. He says, "I wish he president." has shared that more carefully with the thing that he did second by saying, here's where we are creating the jobs. So there's partial evidence from Richard Trumka. Well, you didn't include all of his interview. Okay. I mean, would you like okay. to include the rest? Oh, now she wants him to include every single thing he said. Again, the, the, the rhetorical sophistry that goes on in these press briefings, and Ducey's the only one pressing on this question, she's never going to have to answer the question one way or the other if they don't get more pressure. And and remember, Fox News is the outlet that they want to eliminate. Right? 
it needs to be censored. It needs to be defunded, deplatformed because it's it's all misinformation. They're the only ones here asking for information. Where is the rest of the press? So how about this? Uh, the Laborers International Union of North America said the Keystone decision will cost 1,000 existing union jobs and 10,000 projected construction jobs. Well, what Mr. Trump also indicated in the same interview was that President Biden has proposed a climate plan with transformative investments in infrastructure and laid out a plan that will not only create millions of good union jobs, but also help tackle the climate crisis. So it will. It will do all those things. He's First of all, he hasn't done any of that. He's laid out a plan. He's laid out a plan. And it's going to do all those things. And as the president has indicated when he gave his primetime address uh, to talk about the American Rescue Plan, he talked about his plans to also put forward a jobs plan uh, in, the, in the weeks or months following. So now, th- this is what I mean when I say that so many of the liberal policies, the, the tenets of the liberal ideology, are like a group of, are like a, a circular firing squad. They're in a circle, and if you take the time to pay attention to where any bullet is fired, it seems to fire, it, it, it seems to fire into another person shooting a bullet on the other side of the circle. It's like you're going to create all these jobs, but you just eliminated a whole bunch of jobs. So where are the jobs? It gets worse. You have to keep, keep hanging there with me here. It gets much worse. He has every plan to do exactly that. But uh, there are people living paycheck to paycheck. There are now people out of jobs. Once the Keystone pipe out of jobs, once the Keystone pipeline stopped uh, construction, it's been 12 days since Gino McCarthy and John Kerry were here. And it's been 19 days since then. You know, so what do these people make money now? When do they get their green jobs? Well, uh, the, the president and many Democrats and Republicans in Congress believe that investment in infrastructure, building infrastructure, uh, that's it. Could someone tell me what that means? Could someone, for the love of God, please tell me what that means? Infrastructure. If they were specifically things that they were, they were going to build, like solar panels or, you know, something they can tell us, this is the infrastructure we're going to build and it's going to supply us the energy that we need so that we won't need these fossil fuels and it will supply these people jobs. They never say exactly what it is. Whenever I hear infrastructure, I think of like roads being repaired or bridges being repaired. Um, I, 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 outside of the airports, maybe, except we don't want to build those, <laughs> I got forbid. Although some people need them, you'll see as I move on here, the, the airports are very, very important to some people. Although we, re, the, most of us really should get rid of them because we shouldn't be flying anyway. Um, but some people should. Um, so I don't even know what infrastructure means. If someone can help me understand that, it goes on. International interests uh, and that boosts the U.S. economy, creates good-paying union jobs here in America, and advances our climate and clean energy goals are something that we can certainly work on doing together. And he has every plan to uh, share more about his uh, details of that plan in the, in the weeks ahead. He's, so he's going to share more about the plan in the weeks ahead. That's all she's been saying is that there's a plan. He's going to share more about the plan. What, what, what I don't understand, though, is that the good-paying jobs right now, if they're if the product is not profitable enough to be sold such that makes a, a enough money for people that work in the industry to have high paying jobs where is the money coming from like if there was such a product that was in such demand 
that it would produce enough money to supply people with good paying jobs, like, for example, oh, I don't know, um, natural gas or or oil. If there was if there was such a product, it would already be in demand. Therefore, it would be generating revenue and it would be able to supply people with with high paying jobs. The jobs she's talking about are going to be the, the money for people who will be highly paid is going to come from the government. It's going to be an artificial construction that that funnels money from the government, from us, really, from the taxpayer to the government, from the government to these investments in infrastructure. And then, of course, there'll be high-paying jobs for a little while. There were very high-paying jobs at Solyndra for a while. If you remember that company, that went under because its product was not in high enough demand. Wasn't able to produce enough of the energy. And so I'm, I'm wide open to any source of energy that allows all of these things that they're promising, but there isn't one. You can tell by her rambling, obfuscating answer that there isn't one. So in the meantime, what do we do? In the meantime, all those people uh, that were working on the Keystone Pipeline are out of work. But the, but the oil and gas is going to be shipped anyway, moved anyway, and burned anyway. Someone please help me understand this. And as we go forward, it gets even worse. So I will continue after this quick break. Welcome back to Sam Walking the World, episode 48. Let me continue with this topic of global warming, climate change, Green New Deal, all that. Um, so I don't know if you know it, but uh, here's a question. Let me let me see if you know the answer to this. Um, who do you think is the person who has the highest carbon footprint in the world? I'll answer it for you. It's Bill Gates. Bill Gates, all of his estates and all of his factories and companies and his his carbon footprint has been rated the highest in the entire world, or at least at least in America. But I think it is the world. And he, of course, is a lefty. He's he's always speaking out against uh, fossil fuels. He's he's championing um, the environment and you know, raising the concern about climate change. He's a very smart man, an incredibly wealthy man. Uh, also an old white man. I might throw that in, um, just in case it's relevant, seems to be relevant. Anytime it's a conservative who's an old white man, white privilege and all that. But anyway, uh, clearly he's benefited from capitalism too, this system that needs to be torn down because it creates such disproportionate wealth. But anyway, that's a separate issue. So how does he explain simultaneously arguing that we should use less fossil fuels and have the largest carbon footprint in the world? Here's how he does it. Carbon offsets. Most of you probably already know what they are, but I'm, I'm going to say it just for posterity. Carbon offsets are where you have enough money to purchase, to, to invest in, in, um, in clean energy sources that will supposedly create just as much energy without fossil fuel emission as you're using to to contribute to climate change. So you're carbon neutral, as they say. You have enough money to be able to offset the damage you're doing to the environment by by um by investing in clean energy, whatever that is. 
And so my question then is, well, why don't you just stop using so much fossil fuel yourself? Right? If you're if you're making that large a carbon footprint, why not just reduce it? Stop flying. You know, you can have meetings with Zoom and you can you can limit your travel if you want. And and also it begs the question, with all that money that you have, I mean the average person living paycheck to paycheck might not be able to to afford new energy, a hybrid car, an electric car, whatever. But but he certainly can't. And and it makes me wonder with this all this clean energy that's out there that we're just that we should just be using with all the money that you have bill gates why don't you just just create all of your energy using those sources heat your house you know um travel um everything everything in your life should be able to be covered by green energy you certainly have the money to afford it if such an energy exists Again, I'm left wondering whether or not it does. But some people have to fly. Um, I don't know if you remember recently that the, the new climate czar is um, John Kerry. And I think he's he was selected, I've said before, I think he was selected as a, the climate czar because being, being a tree himself, he's able to understand the needs of other trees and the environment in general. And nature can speak to him because he's you know, related. Um, but but John Kerry received an award in uh, Iceland for, I think it's called the Arctic Circle Award for the person who's done the most to champion the environment, to raise awareness of the dangers of climate change. And it's so funny because <laughs> I, it, it, as, as we speak, First of all, it's kind of funny that he went to a place called Iceland to talk about global warming. And it's strange, too, because at, at this very moment, as I speak, the entire eastern part of the United States is under a cold snap and basically covered in ice. Now, I'm, I'm not stupid enough to think that temporary weather conditions are necessarily reflective of, of the change in the climate. But for some reason, when when it's uh, expedient, you hear liberals talk about mudslides and um, fires in the in the in California and uh, hurricanes. <laughs> and in the summer, they always talk about how hot it is compared to how hot it was the previous year. But right now, we're in a giant cold snap. I wonder if if the logic is it follows that that current weather conditions are a result of global warming. Well, then. This must be a turn in global warming. We must be doing better. Now, I'm not stupid enough to believe that, but but pay attention to how many times that's raised as an example. In fact, John Kerry himself raised it during his acceptance speech, which he flew a private jet across the, across the ocean in order to receive in Iceland. And here is some of what John Kerry said in his speech. Socially irresponsible, you know, 
burning so much fossil fuel. It's killing people. Literally killing people. First of all, it's hard for me to imagine John Kerry's facial expression changing from what it normally is to angry. You can try to picture that for a second. It's difficult. But anyway, he's angry. He's angry that people aren't being responsible. He just flew a private jet from the United States to Iceland in order to receive an award. I mean, it must be a very important trip. Otherwise, I would think that might fall into the category of socially irresponsible when it comes to climate change. I wonder how many people he killed. Because people are dying every day. I wonder how many, if you could quantify it, how many people he killed. And I'm not suggesting he killed any, but anyone who does, like him. But he's a person like him, and that's what you have to remember. Somebody like him, well, he has to fly. He has to fly around the world burning fossil fuels to spread his message. But if you have a, um, a Keystone oil pipeline job, you don't need to have that job. You can go get one of the green jobs that John Saki was not talking about. Um, while he burns enough carbon emission to, I don't know, your whole town wouldn't use. So to continue, um, an Icelandic reporter actually had the audacity to ask John Kerry um, why he's flying. Okay, is, isn't there a little bit of hypocrisy? It's funny that it takes an Icelandic reporter. It takes Peter Ducey and Icelandic reporters in order for the good questions to be raised. And so when asked um, why he's flying, what's so special about him, so important about what he's doing, this was John Kerry's answer. It's the only choice for somebody like me who is traveling the world to win this battle. I believe the time it takes me to get somewhere, I can't sail across the ocean. I have to fly to meet with people that get things done. Ha. There you have it. He has to meet with people to get things done. Don't make him angry. Not that you know it, but don't make him angry. Is that not nuts? I mean, honestly, if Donald Trump was exhibiting this kind of hypocrisy, every single reporter would be screaming at him. And crickets. Except for that one network that we need to make sure gets deplatformed because they're just spreading misinformation. Unbelievable. But he was pressed even further. This Icelandic reporter would not stop, asked him again before he was getting on his plane, of all things. And uh, he said, Why do you? Why, why do you need to? You, you don't need to. And John Kerry said, I knew there was a reason. I knew there was a reason. And I'll thank you so much for that, Milky. That made me smile. And so, you know what? I could just go on describing it, but it'll just end up driving me nuts. I think I'd rather just go for a hike in the trail with my dog, enjoy nature, and um, not be a hypocrite. With that, I have run out of gas and oil. <laughs> Thank you, as always, for listening. I really do appreciate it, and you'll be hearing from me again soon.